Lamentations 3, 19-21 says uh, they are new every morning. Every blessing is new every morning. We don't take these for granted. We especially don't take for granted the Lord's Day opportunities. Appreciate these good songs about the soul. The soul of man. Where the soul never dies. The home of the soul. We're going to do some reviewing about the soul of man. S-O-U-L. The soul of man. And So let's get started. Let's begin with the reality of the soul. Let's begin this morning with the reality of the soul. The actuality of it. The existence of the soul. Do you in fact have a personal being residing within your body known as the soul or spirit that will survive the death of your body and live eternally? Do we have that within us? Or are we simply a biological hunk of dust living on the same level as any other beast of the earth. Now, of course, the first option there is the one that we base our lives upon. So notice a few scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 16. For which cause we faint not, though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is renewed day by day. Notice the two phrases there, outward man and inward man. We have an inward man. Our outward man is decaying, and don't we know it? Our outward man, the outer part of us, our body is decaying, and you don't have to tell us that. We look in the mirror and we wonder, what is that staring back at me? We feel it every day. And for you young folks, we're just telling you that as you get older, you will begin to feel your body going down every day. So 2 Corinthians 4, 16 supports this personal being that resides within our body called the soul. The outward man is decaying. That decaying process, by the way, is part of the price tag for sin being in the world. We remember Paul saying in Romans 5 and verse 12, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So that decaying process is because that's our price tag for sin. Now move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul's explaining in this context how that God revealed His will to mankind through the use of words. And then he asked this question. Who knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is within him? Notice that. Who knoweth the things of a man except for the spirit of man that is within him. So notice Paul saying that within us is the spirit or our soul. Notice that this spirit or soul is capable 
or it is what gives us the capability of knowing. Because we have a soul, then we can know things. We can accumulate knowledge. We can be aware of things. The outward part of us, our bodies, that is a tool that God has given us. It's an instrument that God has given us. It's an outlet for the mechanism of our soul. You see, our brain is not what causes us to know something or remember something or to be aware of something. It's not our brain. Our brain is, is a tool that God has given us, but it's the spirit, it's the soul that knows. You see, who knows the things of a man except the spirit that is within him? All right. Now go back to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus, familiar words to us, he says, Fear not them that kill the body, but after that they have no more they can do, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both, both soul and body in hell. Now underline the word both there. We have both soul and body. Both soul and body. That's, that's how we are comprised. That's, what, that's, how, we're, that's how we have been uh, created. Notice, and this is tremendously encouraging to us, notice that evildoers cannot touch the soul. Evildoers cannot touch the soul. That's one thing Jesus is doing there in Matthew 10. He's encouraging His disciples. They will speak evil against you, but they also will attempt to harm you. But nonetheless, they cannot ever touch your soul. If someone speaks evil of you, or mocks you, no problem. They'll never be able to touch your soul. Remember reading it over in Acts chapter 7, they stoned Stephen, but they were not able to touch his soul. See, The devil has done his work and is doing his work in this world, and that means, as we said a moment ago, that our bodies are decaying, our bodies are dying, but nonetheless the devil himself cannot touch our soul. So notice there Jesus talking about the reality of the soul. And then let's go back to Daniel chapter 7, going back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. Daniel was involved in different um, visions, and sometimes those visions and interpreting those visions were troublesome to him as he waited on God to help him. He said in Daniel 7, verse 15, he said, My spirit was grieved within my body. My spirit was grieved within my body. Notice Daniel recognizes that there's two parts to him, his body and his spirit within him. And notice how that the spirit is where we grieve. Okay? Again, the body is the outlet. It's the instrument God has given us for the workings of the soul or the spirit. As we said a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 2, with our spirit, we know things. We are aware of things. And also with our spirit, here in Daniel 7, 15, we express emotions. That's where our emotional center is, is right there in our spirit, in our soul. Daniel said, I was grieved in my spirit. Okay. And then go back to Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 as Solomon discusses death. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, as Solomon describes to us what happens at death, he says, The dust 
returns to the earth from whence it came. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Again, notice the distinction there between the dust, our body, and the spirit that God has given us to live within our body. Notice how this verse from Solomon describes uh, to us how he supports the Genesis account of creation when he uses the word dust. Remember in Genesis 2 verse 7 it says, God created man out of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so Solomon knew about that. He supports that creation record right here. But notice what Solomon mainly is doing is describing to us what happens at death. He says at death, the dust returns to the earth from which it came and the spirit returns to God who gave it. James chapter 2, 26 says something very similar. James 2 and 26 says that as faith without works is dead, so the body without the spirit is dead also. That's what Paul is doing there, or rather James. That's what James is doing there in James 2. He's describing to us faith without works is dead. But he uses the body and spirit analogy. He says the body without the spirit is dead. And then going back to an example there in Genesis chapter 35, verse 18. Genesis 35, 18. Jacob, his wife, uh, Rachel... Rachel is heavy with child, and she's going to give birth to Benjamin, but she's going to die in childbirth. And notice your Bible there in Genesis 35, verse 18. It says that as she died, her soul departed from her. Her soul departed from her. And then quickly notice uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says... That we are all made in the image and the likeness of God. And when it says that, that has absolutely nothing to do with our physical uh, makeup. Rather, it has everything to do with being made in the image of God. But God is not physical. John 4, 24 says God is spirit. We learn from Jesus in Luke 24 and 39 that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. It's interesting when Jesus was uh, discussing things with Peter in Matthew 16... Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, uh, 16 or so. And then um, Jesus responds by saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't get your information from a flesh and blood source. You got your information from the Father who is in heaven, who is not flesh and blood. He is spirit. And it is in that spirit that we're created. We're created in the image of God. That means there's a part of us that's like God. It's not the physical part of us. It's rather the soul part of us. And it's quite interesting and sad to think about what mankind does with God. Mankind. We have the very image of God pressed upon us and within us. And yet we turn from Him or we ignore Him. We don't pursue Him. We don't search out for Him. We repudiate Him. And can you think of anything more 
rude. Can you think of anything more ungrateful? Can you think of anything more unholy? Can you think of any more, anything more lowly based than for man to turn away from God in whose image he has been made? And so first, this morning as we review the soul, the reality of the soul. Secondly, as we review the soul, let's think about the value of the soul. The value of the soul. King James Version, Matthew 16, 26. I believe the King James has it best here in Matthew 16, 26, where Jesus asked this question, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? And it begs us to ask, well, do I own anything? Do you own anything? Whatever it is that you feel like you own, the soul isn't worth much more than that, whether it be your car or your, your phone, your clothes. The soul is worth more than that. Do you own property? Do you own a house? Okay, way to go. The soul is worth much more than that. Suppose you owned, Aaron was mentioning Lawrence County. Suppose you owned all of Lawrence County. Okay, that would be kind of handy. But your soul would still be worth more than all of that. Suppose you owned the entire state of Alabama. Of course, your soul is worth more than that. We just go on and on. United States, suppose you owned the whole world. Well, you, what have you owned the entire country? Well, you could make Bill Gates seem like a poor fellow. But if you own the entire world, still, the soul is worth more. They say that the earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. Suppose you were able to put, and you can't do this, but just supposing you, you had some scales, and on one side you put the soul, and the other side you put the earth. Well, the soul is worth so much more that that earth would be sent twirling like a golf ball into the universe. Jesus is trying to get us to see how valuable the soul really is. And he does this as well in Luke chapter 15, the first several verses there in Luke 15, talking about the value of the soul. People were beating a path to the door of Jesus because he had such compassion upon sinners. He ate with sinners, Luke 15, 1 and 2. He had compassion upon the downtrodden. They beat a path to his door. He was roundly criticized for it every time anybody does that. Anybody who takes seriously the mission of Jesus will be criticized. Keep that in your back pocket. But Jesus was being criticized, so he gave him a story about a man who had a hundred sheep. And what if one of them is gone astray? What's he going to do? He's going to leave the ninety and nine. And he's going to go into the mountains and he's going to search until he finds that lost sheep. He's going to bring him home. 
people are going to rejoice with him. Someone might say, well, that seems like something not very practical to do. You've got 100 sheep and you're going to, you're going to go and leave those 99 and act, go after that one. Well, it would be practical if you're the one that's lost. That's what Jesus is telling us. If you're the one that's lost, it would become very important. All, all of a sudden, it would become very practical. The church needs to learn this. The world needs to learn this. We need to relearn it. How valuable a single soul is. And in God's mind, how about that? What if we just started looking at things through the eyes of our Lord? Is it worth expending resources? Is it worth expending great amounts of time? Is there any limit that we should put on resources to go after one soul. Jesus, in, in bold letters, Jesus is underscoring the value from His standpoint. And is there any other standpoint, by the way? Is there any other standpoint other than the Lord's standpoint? Is there any other opinion of value on this? In Jesus' eyes... He is underscoring the value of every single soul. And that ought to cause us to expend any resource, sacrifice any time. If he's not telling us that from this hundred sheep story, I don't know what he's saying. Thinking about the value of the soul, look at a couple of verses. One, 1 Corinthians 8, 11, and then the, the companion verse there is Romans, 15, Romans 14, 15. So let me say it again. 1 Corinthians 8.11 is one verse, and Romans 14.15 is the other verse. They're companion verses. And the situation is, in Paul's day, in Paul's day, there were some who were trying to work their way out of, out of the world into Christianity. And some of those working their way out of false religions, in their false religions, their spiritual status was associated with the eating of meats. Weird to us, but a reality in that day. Some of the meats were meats sacrificed to idols. Some of the meats might have been the old uh, regulations from the old law of Moses. But nonetheless, some people who were hearing the gospel and working their way out of a false religion were sitting down with members of the Lord's church and Paul saying to them, Sometimes you ought not to eat those meats that you have full right to eat. But for a while, until they grow out of that belief, they grow out of their old religion and understand that, that with the true religion, with the true God, meats don't matter anything one way or the other. But until they grow out of that, when you sit down and study with them, don't, don't set that meat in front of them. Don't set those meats. But then Paul's reasoning goes like this. For Christ died for that brother. Or Christ died for that person. That was Paul's reasoning behind what he was saying. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what Paul said. And you can put your name in place of me there in Galatians 2.20. You can put your name there because Christ 
loves you and died for you, for me, for everyone, personally. Let's do something ridiculous again, but let's just do some supposing. There's about 4.9 million people in the state of Alabama, about 330 million people in our country, about 7 billion people worldwide. This is ridiculous, but let's just suppose that every person, every person who has ever lived, lived a perfectly sinless life with one exception, and that's you. Question, would Jesus still have come to the earth, become human flesh, and suffered on the cross, allowed himself to be crucified on the cross for you? What's the answer to that? You know it's yes. Christ died for you. And Paul's bringing this out for us to understand the value of the soul. So, in third place then, let's notice the home of the soul. Having seen the reality of the soul, and then the value of the soul, let's think for a moment or two about the home of the soul that we were singing about earlier. I love to think about this. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if when this earthly tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, home of the soul. There are two tabernacles or two tents that, God, that Paul is talking about here. This first one, the outer tabernacle, the outer tent of us, is being dissolved. We know that. It's going down. But at the same time, God is working for us a tabernacle that's not made with hands. It's not fleshly, but it's spiritual. And it's going to allow us, a a new spiritual body, it's going to allow us to live with God in eternity. Now notice in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 that Paul says this outer tabernacle is being dissolved. That means it is going down. That's what the word literally means, going down. The first part of the word is down, the second part of the word is being loosed. It's loosing down. It's actually disintegrating right before our eyes. I'll just say that to make you feel better. But on the other hand, our soul is going to be loosed and be able to go to eternity. How do we know that? Turn over in your Bible to Philippians uh, chapter 1 in the place where Paul says of 21 to 23... I think it's 23, Philippians 1, 23. Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. The word depart is the very opposite of the word dissolve in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. The word depart means to loose upward. Okay. There's going to be a flying away one way or another. 
But the word depart means to loose upward. Paul says, I, I have a desire to get out of this flesh and to be with Christ. And then notice what he says after that. He says, which is very far better. That's an unusual collection of words for the New Testament. Very rare do you find a triple description of something. But it is used with heaven. And it's used right here. Philippians 1.23. Heaven is very far better. It's not just better. Not just a little better. It's better. It's not just better. It is far better. It's not just far better. It is very far better. And you can see what the writer's trying to do. He's trying to get us to see it doesn't even compare. What we experience here doesn't compare to what's about to be. Add to that, going back to 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 4 again, this time verse 17. Notice Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, notice it, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice all those compacted together. It's not that our sufferings of this time is not noticeable. It's not even, it, doesn't even mean that it doesn't even mean that they're not important. But in comparison, notice what he says. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No wonder Paul said, I have a desire. To depart and to be with Christ. It was quite a struggle for Paul there in Philippians 1. He said, I know being here with you is needful. Because he had knowledge of the gospel. That's what people needed. But in Paul's personal relationship with his Lord, he desired to depart from here and be with Christ. Home of the soul. No wonder Paul's words come to us in Romans 8 verse 18. Romans 8 verse 18. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared, are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. That glory is the home of the soul. And finally this morning, Having looked at the reality of the soul and the value of the soul and the home of the soul, what about the care of the soul? Caring for the soul. That in itself is another lesson, but just to mention that. The soul must be saved. Sin damages our soul. It puts us in a position that is away from God. It separates us from our Creator. The soul can be lost. We must care for our soul. And that's why Jesus has given us the Scriptures, given us, given us His Word. We must care for our soul. James five nineteen and 20 mentions saving a soul from death. 
the soul can be lost. We must listen to our Lord. And listen to those who worked for our Lord back there in the early times of scriptures. Listen to them to make sure our soul is saved. When Jesus uses the word saved in Mark 16, 16, he's talking about the salvation of the soul. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. We must have the wisdom to be able to understand the importance of that salvation. We must learn to look beyond. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. We must learn to look beyond. The devil is very good at keeping our focus on those things which we see. But just because we are alive as this as the seasons now, we enjoy spring, we enjoy summer, we enjoy seeing the changes of life. Just because we're alive today doesn't mean that our soul is saved. Just because we're able to be involved in a few good things, just because we stay out of that kind of trouble which is wretched to other people's lives, Just because we are able to keep ourselves above water financially doesn't mean that our soul is saved. We've got to be able to look beyond what we see. Notice how often just in these few verses this morning the comparison is made between the dust and the spirit. The outer man and the inward man. It is the inward man that is being prepared for eternity. We must be able to look beyond our Lord was able to do, to do this. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, notice this, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's why we're going to assemble around the table here in just a minute. But before we do that, we're thinking together here. Look how Jesus was able to look beyond as he endured the cross, what was he looking toward? He was looking toward heaven, yes, but also he was looking toward the fact that many people's souls would be saved because of his endurance of the cross. And like him, we've got to be able to look beyond. They were torturing his body, whipping his body. They nailed him to a cross, okay. They pierced his side, whatever. He was looking beyond. We've got to be able to look beyond ourselves and see the importance of the soul. And we invite you to God. That's what we do. That's, actually, it's not us. God's Word invites you home this day and all the time. Will you please come right now as we stand together? As we sing?